Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. I'm Victor, and Simon is with me. This is one of our off-cycle, while-we're-on-hiatus episodes. I don't know exactly when this episode will be coming out. This is an early preview of our feelings on the By Night Studios beta slice of Changeling. It should be dropping right around the time the beta slice is released. The By Night Studios crew was gracious enough to let us take a look at it so that we could get our opinions out right away along with their release, which was great of them to do, and we really appreciate it. And we're going to kind of give our overview of the beta slice and everything that's included. Simon and I have said this before, but we do not have the most LARP experience of... (laughs) Any gamer ever. I have some LARP experience. I have played the By Night Studios system, both at Midwinter this past year, which we talked about previously, and I've been taking part in a small local playtest in Chicago, but they're like four or five person games at most, just kind of playing around with the systems and, and seeing how they work in discrete scenarios. I will give some feedback from that. And full disclosure, I am in a think tank group with By Night Studios, so I'm giving them some early feedback. This is the first time I'm getting to talk about most of this stuff publicly, which is exciting. I've had to kind of keep quiet about what they've shown me, and it's it's very exciting for me to see all of this get out there. I think there's a lot of cool stuff, and this will be our first take on it. So should be a lot of fun. So... Just to go through some of the things that are in this edition, uh, the this particular beta slice that weren't in the last slice, there are a bunch of new kiths and some new arts and a few core systems. The new kiths that they released are the Cleriken, the Ishu, the Gilly-Do, the Inanime, and yes, it is all of the Inanime. We'll be talking about them a fair bit later. The Puka and Satyrs. The new arts they've released are Arboreal, Naming, Revelry, and Tailcraft, and they did a major revision to Chicanery and are now calling it Skullduggery. And then the new systems they've released are, they have systems for Cold Iron, Chrysalis, they've revised Glamour a bit, and they have revised Banality a bit, and they have systems for Bedlam. To be honest, we're not going to touch on everything here because that would be That would be like a three-hour episode. We're going to talk about some of the highlights and the things that really jumped out at us when we were going through the the new content, the revised content, and just focus on some of the areas where there are the biggest changes, either from the alpha or from the, the tabletop source material that they're sort of branching off from. So I guess I will kick this over to Simon and just ask... What were some of the big things that jumped out at you when you were reading through this? Well, I did my standard reading from the first page to the last page thing, and I haven't gotten to the last page yet. So I'm not all the way through it, but I did get through the kits and the arts, and the things that jumped out at me were that their jumping off point for this has pretty clearly been 2nd edition Changeling, and... The places where they deviate from where C20 went are interesting. The Clericon is unlike the C20 Clericon. Naming is more like 2nd edition naming than it is like C20 naming. And 
the thing I was probably most impressed with was that they managed to give the inanime a concise and coherent history <laughs> because they haven't had that really. <laughs> yeah, I I have to be honest, I've kind of grown in my opinion of the inanime when I first looked at them. I had to kind of step back a little bit because I love weird alien. I'm a fae without a human soul. I'm totally different. You don't get me. Like, I dig that deep alien experience. And this write-up of the inanime is, is very much designed to be more approachable, to make sense in Concordian society, and to be more playable. And at first I went, no, but I love all these alien shenanigans and the weirdness of the inanime. And then I came back and I've read the whole text again. And I actually really like what they did. There are a couple areas that, you know, I might adjust a little thing here, a little thing there. But I I agree with Simon. I really like the inanime history now. I think it's tight and it makes sense. Some of the old inanime backstory you really kind of had to not look at too closely for it to make sense. They've adjusted the inanime so that you only get one husk. You can't just burn through husks because in C20, it's like, well, if I die, I'll just go make another husk. And it's only a banality trigger if I do it to myself. And when you stop and think about what happens to any other character, if they engage in combat and take enough damage to die, they die. The level of it, borderline immortality they gave the inanime was kind of outrageous. There's a little bit of solemnance risk, but it was minimal, honestly, relatively speaking. Um, and the inanime in here are designed to be on the same sort of power level with the other characters, the other kith. And I really like that because it makes them playable in a LARP setting. It makes them a possible core option. And I've never seen anyone else pull that off. Yeah, there are a couple of things that I would change or tweak to make them a little bit more mm, interesting player fodder. But overall, they fit the scope of the game much better than they have in the past, and I really appreciated the way they used the anime history to invoke the Dark Ages Fae link, because it was, it was very nearly elegant. Yeah, the other thing they did, and this is probably my favorite part of the anime, is they've introduced Sparks as a major developed kingdom. They're also called Solas. And so Sparks are in anime that are born out of anywhere where electricity has been harnessed. I think there's a, a short sort of one or two line mentioned that if a lightning bolt strikes, the place that it strikes could become a spark anchor and you could have an unshaped spark, but it's very rare. It's kind of the equivalent of the old one or two line mentioned that you could have a tree or a stone or something else that naturally looked like a human and a doll could emerge from it unshaped instead of a Kubera or a Gloam because of that sort of human shape, which invokes the whole, we find human shapes and faces, places that they don't really exist. But it was kind of an offhanded side hook. It wasn't the core concept, and the solos are similar. 
I love that they built that out. I think sparks were mentioned in the older in anime text, but it was just kind of a throwaway example of other phyla might exist. And eh, I I think they're very relevant. In the backstory, they made them previously part of the Doll Kingdom, which ties into that whole robots, AI sort of narrative. And it's a space that I've always wanted explored through a changeling lens. You know, it's a small section of a larger kith right up on the anime, so don't expect the pages and pages of exploration that maybe some people might hope for out of that topic. But it cracks the door open, which I appreciate. So, turning it back on you, what jumped out at you on your read? So, the inanimate did jump out at me as well. The other group that really jumped out at me were the Clurican. I've always kind of struggled with the Clurican because they're presented as leprechauns. But when you go back and look at actual leprechaun myths, leprechaun myths are all about house spirits. You know, leprechauns make shoes. That's like their most stereotypical thing. The whole pot of gold shenanigans. I don't want to say it's not part of the myth, but it's not the central part of the myth that a lot of Americans think it is. And so the Clurican being centered around drunkenness and the pot of gold was awkward because the Clurican in their original myths are centered on alcohol, but it's because they're house spirits of wineries, of wine cellars. And when you take that house spirit piece away, because that belongs to Boggins, you're left with this thing that doesn't totally work. And C20 made it work by saying, don't don't pay attention to American gods. We swear we didn't rip off any characters from there. No, 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 no. And they just like shoved the leprechaun from American gods into a kith. He's fun to play, but... It's a little awkward. Um, and what they did with Clurican in the By Night Studios system is instead of emphasizing the house spirit aspect, they emphasize the contracting aspect. The Clurican are masters of contracts, which is also part of their old myths. You know, you made an agreement, you honored them, you had some half of the bargain you had to keep up for them to make all those shoes for you or do whatever other task they were doing. They were deal makers. And the Clurican are framed as the masters of contracts aside from the she. So previously, naming contracts sovereign, all the forceful arts, all the agency forceful arts that took away agency that manipulated people those really all belonged to the she and they took this one part of that out and they gave it to the clerican which fits mythologically they're always conniving depending on the court they can either be outright maliciously conniving the shadow court clerican are like full-on rumpelstiltskin horror shows Or it can be a little more balanced and reasonable, but they're always trying to get the upper hand. And I read it, and it read like a leprechaun, and it didn't infringe on the narrative space the Boggins had. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. This accomplished what I actually didn't think anyone could accomplish with the Clurican. And it made me really happy. Yeah, I read the Clurican, and I was was totally into it. Um, It also reminded me that I think the Clerican and the Spriggan were introduced at the same time. Or was that Spriggan and Pisky? That was Spriggan and Pisky. Dang. But, like, I, it just made me think of 
Spriggans being the Thalane Cluricon because they're in Changeling, their whole thing is kind of the Rumpelstiltskin Pied Piper thing. Like, I made this deal with you and you welched on it, so I'm going to screw you as hard as I can on that. And I guess if Spriggans are supposed to be Thalane Piskies, that doesn't work, but it feels better that way now. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that does totally fit. I mean, I also, it's interesting when you talk about the Pied Piper or Rumpelstiltskin, I sort of think of the Pied Piper as a Sealy Cluricon, because the Pied Piper showed up and he did exactly what he said he was going to do, and he said, pay up, and his price wasn't that unreasonable. It wasn't low, but it wasn't that unreasonable, and he went, fine, I'll take your children. But, like, he wasn't out to get the village from the beginning. Rumpelstiltskin was setting a trap from moment one. And that's kind of the division they write between Sealy Cluricon, where if you screw them out of, you know, whatever the contract is, they will still mess you up, but they're not out to get you from the beginning. A Shadow Court Cluricon, while they will honor their contracts because they have to, it's in their kith, they will do their best to make a contract you will not be able to fulfill. And so there, there's space for a lot of different stories there. And it kind of moves into space that they made in the Alpha release, where they introduced the idea of the commoner noble divide being more about station rather than being about whether or not you're she. And in a couple of different places, they did a pretty good job of setting up like, this is traditionally a commoner kith, but they have a significant noble component to them now. The Clerican were one of them, and giving them contracts kind of helped fill that out a little bit. And it's jumping around a little, but one of the uh, the commoner arts, Inglenook, robbed a couple of powers from Sovereign. In particular, I remember Protocol being, I think it's like a third level Inglenook power with a different name now, but it's totally Protocol. And I really liked that. I mean, I can just, I can totally see you know, a, a clerican now, or a Boggin, or maybe a Cat Puka pulling off that power, because if you've never pissed off somebody in your family who, you know, is that aunt, or, you know, annoyed somebody's cat, and had them start following you around and policing you, you've had a very charmed life. Yeah, so the interesting thing with the putting protocol in Inglenook is Sovereign still has protocol, and Inglenook has kind of a different version of it. You spend a glamour point, and you can stop people from fighting, especially if they're in your domain. In one of the playtests that I did, I played a Boggin, and I took Inglenook, and I didn't get to fourth level because we were starting at beginning characters, but I did get to use Inglenook, and it does feel very much like Commoner Sovereign. I ended up using Master of the House. Anyone who's ever LARPed knows there's this tendency for players to kind of like chest bead and try to just control the narrative flow of a conversation, and I had a bunch of players try to turn that on me in a moment where I was the only Seely Fae in the room, and they were all trying to push towards doing these terrible, awful things, and being just very hard line about it. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm not going to fight you anymore. 
And Master of the House lets you reorganize which doors lead into which doorways. It's the kind of M.C. Escher phenomenon. And I took the storyteller aside and I was like, look, every single door in this house is now going to redirect back into the house, all of them. And when they decide to go out and do these terrible things, which they are clearly going to do and my character would not be all right with, I'm just going to sit on the couch and let them realize what's happened. And we're going to move on from there. And it just, like, stopped what they were trying to do in the scene. I didn't have to control everything. I didn't have to get into a social confrontation. I just stepped back and reorganized the playing field we were on and waited for the scene to play out the way I knew it would. And I loved being able to do that. It's And it felt very commoner. Like, it wasn't the, you're going to do what I say because I'm important. It felt more... I don't know, more approachable. Yes, it was very Minnesota Sealy. The character I was playing was very in that spirit. Um, But I like having a space for that. It's something I wish Tabletop had more of, honestly. The other art change they did, introducing Arboreal, kind of fills that space too. It's weird because it feels like a stand-in for the Dryad's art but they don't get it and one of the things it does is it fills a space similar to the spring art in c20 but it does it in smaller ways because some of it like seeds of greatness feels very much like the dryad's birthright while on the second tier power sacred grove feels a little bit like they took was it hestia's blessing and then that one power from Changing the Lost, where everybody who slept near you felt better the next day, and a couple of freehold powers, and slammed them all together and went, okay, portable freehold, here you go. And it's interesting who gets it, because it's the Gillydew, not the Dryads, but it feels very much like it's trying to fill that, this is a commoner power that looks a lot like what was traditionally a noble thing, having a freehold. Yeah, and I really like Arboreal. I think it's one of uh, the more interesting and thematic new arts. It fits into what I think is a broad design choice. They're introducing a lot more of, uh, this is an art of a particular narrative idea, especially if you're jumping off from second edition Changeling. There were some holes in the art structures. And so they're introducing arts like Tailcraft that the issue have that are all about controlling and manipulating stories and narrative. And Inglenook is all about hearth and home and it's a bog in power. And they're introducing more powers that are centered around kind of a focused narrative concept as opposed to being very broad and applicable across the board the way the arts used to be. And Arboreal fits into that. It's this art of greenness and verdancy. And I like it. I like the powers it uses for a lot of the reasons that Simon indicated. It's weird that the Dryads don't have access to it, though. In building the Inanime, they tried to set the Inanime up as a single kith, and I think they did a really elegant job overall with that. The one downside of having them as a single kith, though, is the kith all have a list of affinity arts, kind of full stop. And they added some flexibility with the anime in that the arts you get are metamorphosis, 
Naming, and one of the following, Oakenshield, Primal, or Wayfair. Those three arts actually, I think, are a really good breakdown if you're talking about between the Undyne, the Gloams, the Parasims. That works really well. And like, it doesn't make sense for a Parasim to have Primal, but it makes sense for them to have Wayfair. It doesn't really make sense for a Gloam to have Wayfair, but it makes sense for them to have Primal or Oakenshield. And with the Ondines, there's there's room in there, arguably, to have, I'd say, Primal or Wayfair. Oakenshield would be weird. And there are arts here that it would make sense to give to a Kubera. I could see a Kubera definitely having Primal. I could see a Kubera having Oakenshield, that whole hardwood dynamic. But not having Arboreal there is the one thing that I looked at and I thought, players that really want to play that dryad wood elemental archetype are going to play the Gillydew. So I think the Inanimate overall are a really good fit, but I don't know how Kubera are really going to find their place. Yeah, and Primal went through some pretty substantial changes now. I liked the way it went in C20, so I'm a little bit disappointed in this, because in C20 they went, this is elemental power for changelings, and in the Binite Studios version, it's... uh, How did you put it? So, the Primal power borrows some abilities from Potence, from the Binite Studios Potence, and Oakenshield borrows some very solid uh, systems from the By Night Studios systems for Fortitude. It tweaks them and adds to them to make them fit more with Changeling. They do things beyond just that simple, do more damage, be more survivable. So they're not a direct pull forward, but it's very clear, at least to me on the reading, that that's the kind of game balance dynamic they're meant to fill. And some of the stuff for Primal, like Will-O-Whisper and whatnot, I, I think I saw in some other arts. So it's not like the powers that made up Primal disappeared, but they used it to kind of fill in that damage-dealing space in trying to build their game balance. Yeah, which makes giving the anime Primal mean something a bit different than I would have hoped it would have. Yeah, in the older elemental, like... Summon the Elements, Manipulate the Elements version of Primal, it's a, a much more obvious fit. I will say a lot of Primal is themed and explained narratively still in elemental terms. So the flavor is there. I, I get why it's here, and especially the balance between Oakenshield and Primal and Wayfair, those are kind of the, if I had to say it, a stand-in for Fortitude, Potence, and Celerity. They really kind of map to the way by night studios handled those it's a good game balance setup like what they have here is okay you have metamorphosis and naming and those are your narrative powers and now pick which type of combat you're good at like what is going to be your combat discipline and i think this was probably designed off of you know that general balance being a lot of how they picked most of the arts for a lot of the kiths so Looking at it purely mechanically, I, I think it's well-designed. I think it's elegant. It's just that Gillydew having Arboreal and Kubera not, it just, I'm still trying to make that work for me thematically. So what did you think of the Gillydew, apart from them being Dryads now? I liked the Gillydew. I liked the Gillydew for a lot of the same reasons that I like the Inanime. The Gillydew previously were pretty much not playable. 
Like, if you played a very local Changeling Chronicle, you could play a Gillydew. If there was ever any chance that your characters would travel, which is not unusual for Changelings, a Gillydew kind of killed it. Like, the Gillydew don't travel well in tabletop, and they're very removed, and they're kith in the strictest sense of the C20 term. They don't count as Galen, I guess, but really, they're not part of Concordian society. And really, in the old tabletop, they barely show up in America at all, I think. They're mostly in Wales. And that was all restructured, and they were kind of folded into Concordian society. And a lot of that had to do with their reaction to the endless winter and needing to find a place to survive. They struck me as playable and well-written and engaging, the thing that I was kind of left scratching my head a little bit is that overlap, again, between the Gillydew and the Kubera. They're, they really fill kind of the same narrative space. With the ties to the overall inanime history, I could kind of see the distinctness between the two of them in terms of they'd be wrapped up in very different politics and that the Gillydew are just kind of coming in and becoming part of this society they haven't been a part of and finding a place for themselves. And they're much more individualistic characters. Whereas if you play to Kubera, you're part of this whole secondary political infrastructure. The inanime are described as acting differently when they're among all inanime because they don't have to behave in a Kithane sort of way. And so I do see how they could each hold a space in the narrative, but speaking purely from an archetypical standpoint, there's a bit of overlap. I would say if you really just like full on want to play a really green man feeling character, you want to play a Gillydew. That's really where all that lives right now. Again, partially because of that arboreal space, partially because the Kubera are wrapped up in a much broader elemental political spectrum. They're not all about being green men and women. The other place the wilderness intrudes into the new By Night Studios Changeling slice is the way they've rewritten the Puka. I know you had stronger feelings about that than I did, so I think I should leave that to you. So the Puka are interesting, and full disclosure, the Puka are... (laughs) The Puka are one of the slices that when I was giving feedback in the Think Tank, I had very strong feelings about. And similar to the Inanime, I read it and I gave my feedback and I stepped away from it and I came back when the beta slice came out and I reread them and I like them more. I went back and compared and they didn't make major changes, but they made a few tweaks and I think the Puka are in a pretty good space. I love the Puka in Tabletop Changeling. I think the place the Puka hold in Tabletop Changeling is all of Changelings are constantly playing this sort of reality game where the world is cold and banal and terrible all around me, and if I acknowledge that, I am screwed. I've got a gun to my head, and I can't stop being happy, or the person holding it is going to pull the trigger, and that will be terrible, and the Puka are just that dynamic ramped to a thousand. And if you play the lie of that really well, I think the Puka are really interesting. So stepping back from that, though, you're never going to get that much 
multi-layered lie upon lie upon lie flavor out of a group in a big open game setting. Most people are going to pick something up and play the surface of it. And that's always been a problem with the Puka. I have talked to so many people who prior to the By Night Studios system hated Changeling the Dreaming LARP because they had a bad experience with a bad Puka player. I mean, I've heard that story so many times. And so the Puka narrative that the By Night Studios slice goes with is after the shattering, the Puka all buried themselves in their dream burrows, which that's from the old Kith book. And only the most common animals that had the best relationship with humans stuck around, urban animals, pets. You got your occasional coyote or raccoon because they were so common in urban areas, but really mostly not even wild animals at all. And you go through and they have a pretty dark time and they're not they're not happy-go-lucky at all during that period. The resurgence happened and they just clung to that and they took on this happy-go-lucky jester role because they are tricksters to an extent as well and they leaned into their Sealy court. And that was all well and good. And then the Endless Winter hit, a second shattering, if you will. BNS doesn't use that term, but like the idea kind of fits. The Sheol disappear, banality washes over the world again. It's very similar. And the Puka, by and large, go, we're not doing this anymore. We can't do this anymore. No, we're not. We're not playing the fool. That was a, that was a terrible mistake. Things weren't better, and we're not deluding ourselves. We're done with this. And the way they kind of explained all of it happening is they tie the puka very strongly to fate. They turned the puka into oracles, but not good oracles. And by not good oracles, I mean the puka see every possible future. They see all these lines of fate, like going into the future from where they're standing at, all the different things that could happen. They have no idea which of those visions are more likely. They are all legitimate possibilities but they don't know which one's really going to happen and they get they basically can't keep track of it all and so their lies are sort of born out of their constantly speaking to a truth that will probably never manifest and they don't know that they don't get it that would be such a hard concept to play but i love that lens that idea of the puka the puka are no longer that I've got to be happy or I'll die aspect of changeling ramped to a thousand. That is very clearly been framed as a thing they did during the resurgence. We're past that now. And I understand why they've done that because I've seen the way people play puka. I've dealt with it in a tabletop game. We killed that puka. Everyone in that chronicle with me turned and did unanimous player death because we just couldn't play with that character in our group anymore. It was that bad. And the stories I've heard from LARP are even worse. So while I love the idea of the Puka narratively, and I, if you dig all the way into the like 20th level of what's really going on with them in tabletop, I think they're fascinating. I think the redesign in the By Night Studios slice is probably the best thing they could have done with them in terms of making a dynamic LARP product that will promote play that everyone will be happy with in a big group game. It's a lot of holding multiple ideas at once that I have to juggle when I think about the Puka. <laughs> I'm feeling very attacked right now. So while you're what? talking about that, I looked... Oh my god, killing Pukas? Ugh. 
they're the they're the one I play. We took the banality for that death very happily. <laughs> oh, oh, my poor, my poor Garu spy Puka. He made so many friends. Maybe your Puka player was just a little damaged. While you were talking about that, though, I pulled it up and I'm looking at it right now, and all their framing is about having that unfortunate quantum view of fate. They don't get soothsay. What's up with that? Soothsay would let them know what's actually going to happen. I mean, I think part of it is soothsay would collapse all of that into an actual idea of what's coming. And I think it makes sense to not give them soothsay because then the entire narrative of I'm overwhelmed with information and I can't actually do anything with it wouldn't really work. But without soothsay, they don't actually have a mechanism for receiving any information about the future. They don't, and that might be something that they get feedback on during playtesting. I think it's really just meant to be narrative. I think it's just meant to be part of their dream that they can use for flavor. It's not supposed to be a systematic benefit. You are right, though. That is a little bit weird. I mean, like, worst case scenario... I guess they could rewrite their flaw slightly to be more like, uh, what was it called? Uh, there's a mage flaw where once per session you make a prediction about something bad that's going to happen, and then it does. Bard's Tongue. They could rewrite it a little bit to be more like that. Yeah, Bard's Tongue. Uh, Bard's Tongue frustrates me so much. That's actually not a mage flaw. It's in all the games. And I've had so many people take it when I'm running games, and I'm like, but I don't want to keep track of that flaw. Like, I'll give you a freebie point to get rid of it. (laughs) So that, I mean, that would be its own sort of misery in a game of 100 at a big convention. But I agree with you from a flavor standpoint. Yeah, it's just a little bit weird that they get metamorphosis. It's not chicanery and Wayfair when they're built entirely around fate. Yeah, it's true. So, as you mentioned, it's not chicanery. That's another, more a narrative change than a systematic change. Um, But they change chicanery into skullduggery. It's basically framed as, and in the endless winter, some of the less reputable fae, thieves, assassins, etc., who grew out of, I'd say, the desperation of the new period of banality— took chicanery and twisted it into something a bit more ruthless, but still rooted in the same kind of activity. The first three levels are identical, but four and five changed. I think you read a little bit more into those powers than I did. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that change? You know, if we are going to ignore the old canon explanation for how chicanery worked and how it came to be. Okay, I'll, like, let's just leave that alone. <laughs> and yeah, Skullduggery is fine. But the construction of Skullduggery, at least in its current form, it's all wrapped around the Shadow Court and then it being like an arms race and, you know... Once you let the genie of any weapon out of the bottle, everybody else is going to figure it out eventually, and we're at a point now where everybody has figured it out, so everybody uses Skullduggery instead of Chicanery. And the first three levels of it are pretty much identical to Chicanery. The fourth and fifth 
look like they give you a sneak attack power, and the fifth one lets you debuff somebody's dodge ability, basically. And there are a lot of little critiques I can make, like, okay, we've got this art that's supposed to have originated with the Shadow Court. Maybe we don't open it with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr.? And, you know, it doesn't really line up with the old canon line for how chicanery worked. But mechanically, it's solid. It's just a lot of little things together that leave me scratching my head. I mean, so when I read it, and the two kiths they've given it to, the Cluricon and the Puka, are both described as having moved pretty heavily into the Shadow Court. When the Endless Winter hit, basically the second shattering again, the Puka especially got cynical and bitter. And similar things happened to the Clurican, although I got the feeling they were maybe a little more inclined to Shadow Court sort of activities before all of that happened. So I kind of understand that connection that they're drawing there, but it still just strikes me as a little bit odd that there's a Kith affinity for what was fundamentally framed as a Shadow Court power, because you still have Seely Puka, you still have Seely Clurikin, and while that whole idea that they present about it was developed by the Shadow Court, but it leaked out because you, they couldn't keep it forever, and now other people use it, that makes sense narratively, but then the Kith affinity feels much more like a supernatural tendency or proclivity, and it just feels weird to me that chicanery would have evolved so universally. I, I agree about it feels good, it's solid. I think it's meant to just be another aesthetic example of we're moving into the endless winter. I think they're trying to build that up in as many different places as they can and building that right into the sort of narrative history and story of the arts, I do think is kind of interesting. They've done more with the history of the arts than I remember the old tabletop game doing with the exception of maybe the stuff that the she brought back. But that story still kind of boiled down to the she brought back some new powers. Well, that's good the for them. Chicanery was an example of them doing that before. What was the old story for chicanery? The old story for chicanery was it was developed at or after the shattering by commoners in order to manipulate what was left of the mists. And that she, at least in second edition, I think it's less emphasized in C20 or maybe absent, and that she look at chicanery and go, ugh, commoner art. Why would anyone learn that? So it had a pretty solid history to it before. Yeah, I do remember that now. I, I feel like they actually could do something interesting with making it more mutable because it was created in the autumn world. Like, I actually think that jumping off of that history, Skullduggery as a evolution of that could make sense. That's, I mean, that's not in there now, but also Beta Slice, early edition. Seeing something that is so strongly tied to the Shadow Court, it was a little weird to see the Martin Luther King Jr. quote at the beginning of that write-up. So... Yeah, I, I don't know if that will stay. The quote itself is a good match, but it is it is a weird connection given how the Shadow Court is framed in the game, though. One of the other arts they added in with this slice 
is Tailcraft, and it's it's the first time I've seen it, and I have very conflicted feelings about it because it is thematically it's everything I've ever wanted from an art in Changeling. It punches all of the buttons I'm looking for for what fey magic should look like. And then on the other hand, it it doesn't need a nerf bat. It needs a nerf genocide. <laughs> it's just way too powerful. Yeah, I love Tailcraft. I think Tailcraft is fantastic, but you are not wrong about the power level. It starts out you know, kind of interesting. And the whole idea behind Tailcraft, I'm pretty sure the only kith who have it as a default are the issue. It ties into their whole role as storytellers. And it it really taps that shaping combat narrative as attack, controlling someone else's story. And again, like Simon says, it's everything I've ever wanted fairy magic to be. And so I love it. And it starts out with like powers like dim the lights and you can control like the mood in the room, sort of like working over an audience for a performance and then setting the stage. And it lets you do subtle illusions and again, manipulate what's going on in an area. And then it goes into like plot twist and you can narrate a particular change to your environment. If you succeed in a static challenge, the change immediately happens. That's a third level power. From stage left, you spend a point of glamour and a standard action to give a grand introduction to a character you describe. As you speak, your words create an illusion of that character who enters from, in quotes, off stage, i.e. the nearest feasible point of ingress, and can act on the next turn, on your initiative. As soon as you start folding in, like, realms and other things, this gets really powerful. And then fifth level is full-on shaping combat. Like, I won't go into detail, it is shaping combat. You get to rewrite someone's personality temporarily. You can't, like, unilaterally change their character for all time, it's so very cool, and it's what I imagine, like, Fey basing their battles with each other on. But I'm also really curious to see how it plays out with a real game and real players. It's such a cool power, and I hope in application it's not as abusable as it reads, because it reads as awesome and dangerous to game stability. <laughs> yeah, even pairing it with some of the realms, like pairing it with nature, Enter from Stage Left and Scheherazade's Revenge, like you could emulate some of the other powers and change them really easily. Enter from Stage Left, you can just create items you didn't have with nature. Or with Scheherazade's Revenge, you could probably like give an item a fate or a mission that is meant to fulfill. And it's just bonker is way too powerful <laughs> i mean it's it's also one of those things where they have a system for resisting arts with banality it's a beta slice it's it's a first stab at something that is really pretty daring 
I'm honestly excited to see how this art evolves through playtesting. I have a suspicion that the final version that gets published will be brought down a notch or two in power, or at least have some very specific limitations on the framing it can be used in, but I honestly hope it doesn't change that much. I I love the concept of it. This is the sort of art that honestly, once this is done, I could see someone writing tabletop versions of this and some of the other arts and dropping them on the ST vault just because I do think it could make the game a lot more rich in a tabletop setting. I think by the time the book comes out that this will be brought down in power a little bit. <laughs> so the last thing that we wanted to talk about are some of the, the main systems. So the systems that they introduced were Cold Iron, which is pretty quick. We're not really going to dive too far into that. Cold Iron works about the way you'd expect it to. It does aggravated damage. It's anathema for the Fae to be around. They did some really interesting things with making a big deal out of the fact that you really just can't use cold iron easily. Something like the Knight of Iron Knives becomes a bigger deal in the context of these rules. If you somehow are able to take a cold iron weapon and wrap it up safely, you have to spend a full standard action to get it out. You don't get the quick unsheath action. They built some system into that I've never seen before, and I liked it all makes sense, you know, kind of move forward. One of the things we wanted to talk about was banality and bedlam. The banality system hasn't changed much, really, from the alpha, but they've introduced a bedlam system, and it's very high level. It's There are five levels of bedlam, and when you do certain things, you can get pushed into a further level. It's not anything like Nightmare in C20. It's also not anything like the if you let your willpower plus banality get too much higher than your glamour plus willpower, maybe it was. Like the whole balancing your stats thing from second edition, it's nothing like that. It's more of a morality system. What's interesting is you have a Bedlam morality system where it's don't get too much glamour in one scene. Don't go wandering into a freehold or the dreaming and stay there. Performing Rhapsody gives you both banality and bedlam, which is interesting. Or it can, I think, the things pushing you into bedlam is a little bit up to the storyteller. And there are five levels, and when you do these things, it really just shoves you further down the path of bedlam. If you gain five derangement traits... It can push you into Bedlam, and that's using the kind of standard Binet Studios derangement system. That all kind of fits. It's a simple five-stage thing. If you are around someone who is fifth-level Bedlam, you will go into first-level Bedlam, even if you don't have any Bedlam. And so they've made it somewhat contagious, which is interesting. I kind of like that. It makes it a little more intensive. I don't know. Before I jump too much into banality, what were your thoughts on the Bedlam dynamic, Simon? On a really surface level, I looked at the Bedlam thing and their description for the different stages of Bedlam, and layout-wise, it's relatively close to, I think, within a page of the sidebar they have about not treating mental illness in inappropriate ways, and reading the description for first-level Bedlam, that's kind of where I am in life right now, (laughs) so... (laughs) 
I'm not quite sure they're succeeding at um, handling the topic of mental illness in a way that uh, doesn't stigmatize people. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> Especially linking the number of derangements you have to how far along into bedlam you are seems uh, not exactly flippant, but it attaches a negative mechanical consequence to players' characters having mental illness uh, beyond just, you know, having to live with mental illness, which is an odd tone for me, and maybe I'm being a little too sensitive. I mean, I think part of the problem there is that's what Bedlam is. I mean, Bedlam has always been expressed as a systematic dive into insanity, and... What insanity is, our idea of mental illness has changed so much since these concepts were originally written down. I mean, at least in terms of popular cultural understanding. I I would argue most of the people I know who were involved in psychiatric work back in the 90s maybe didn't have as much nuanced understanding as they have now. They were much closer to that than people give the 90s credit for. The difference is it's more common knowledge now about that nuance. And, you know, things like the Malkavians and a core concept like Bedlam, I don't really know how to handle Bedlam, to be honest. I prefer to run Bedlam as the dreaming running in and overwhelming and manifesting Nightmare Chimera and Nervosa and... Actually, you becoming a font of uncontrollable dreaming energy. That's the way I tend to treat it at my table. But that doesn't really work in a LARP. And realistically, in terms of trying to express the canon, that's not really how it's written. So, I. Yeah, you run into. (sighs) If they really have to have Bedlam be fairy madness, just be specific about that. Make it its own thing, I think, is is what I would say. Like, It's not this collection of human illnesses. It's its own thing. It has discrete like, qualities to it that maybe resemble bits of things that are real, but taken together don't directly invoke any individual like condition or illness. Yeah, and I think... I think that also gets back to the derangement traits are a core part of the By Night Studios system. I've why never, are we still calling them derangements? I mean, that's that's just a broader systematic thing. I I don't love the idea of derangements. I've seen a lot of conversations in various World of Darkness forums about, you know, this 20th anniversary has them, this 20th anniversary doesn't have them. They should or shouldn't be there. There's a, there's a lot of back and forth on if they belong in games anymore. I kind of land on the side of I'd rather there not be derangements in the game, but there are in the context of this broader system, and they are used by a bunch of organizations now. So, yeah, I don't I don't really know quite how to parse that out. Overall, most of the stuff in the Bedlam chart, aside from the derangements, though, 
I do kind of like things like spending glamour when your willpower is exhausted, I think is a fascinating idea of your tapping into the dreaming when you don't have a ground. Gaining more than five points of glamour in a single scene, pushing you over the edge. I think that's really interesting. They have some other ones like grieving the loss of a motley mate or loved one that I wouldn't have thought of as Bedlam, and I kind of need to spend some more time with that like narrative space, but I could see some stories that could grow from that. Most of these Bedlam triggers I do like. The derangement piece is awkward. It is weird. On the flip side of the morality system, there's banality. And the banality triggers are pretty straightforward. They do use banality triggers, which is the language from C20. And the thing that's different is there it isn't a test. You don't have a chance to resist banality, or temporary banality is called ennui. It's just if you do these things and they're tiered, you will get so much ennui. And a lot of it's standard, spending time in a building or place with high banality rating. They're very clear about location banality. That's a minor trigger. Battling a creature with high banality, such as an autumn person or Dantain. Then you go up and you gain more for destroying a treasure or drinking the blood of a vampire as a banality trigger, which makes a certain amount of sense. Then as you get really high in the chart, though, it starts to feel a lot more like I'd say, mainstream morality system. You know, inflicting chimerical death upon another changeling has always been a banality trigger, but that gives you three points of ennui. Five points is the cutoff for turning into a permanent banality. It's not ten. And so that turns into a much more severe penalty. And then at five, there there are a series of, of triggers that will just give you five ennui, so it's giving you a permanent banality. And one of them is destroying another sentient creature. So any kind of killing is permanent banality in this system. And I suspect that's a reflection of the morality system they did for Vampire and Werewolf. And I think that's probably in place to very strongly discourage casual PC death. I've heard a lot of stories about someone is in an org and they come traveling in from another city and everyone locally goes, ha ha ha, someone we can kill without repercussions because they don't live here and I don't have to deal with it. And they get their jollies out killing someone else's PC. I've heard enough of those stories that I suspect this is here to manage those dynamics. It still feels weird for that to be a banality trigger for, say, a red cap or even a slua. It just feels more like a humanity item than a banality item. And they also have experiencing chimerical death as, bam, permanent banality. And again, chimerical death has been harsh previously, but that is a that is a definite ramp up of its impact on your character. So I don't know, what, what were your thoughts, Simon, when you looked through the banality triggers? Oh, when I was looking at the banality section... I I don't remember if I flipped right to it, but like the first thing I saw was the banality chart, and I was just like, God damn, this thing is back again. Because <laughs> I just don't like it. I get why it's there. Like I get the need of it. It's just so many of the points are so arguable, <laughs> you know? Ugh. Yeah, and so when he's talking about the banality chart, he means the... Uh, 
what is the average banality level for uh, different types of creatures, or in this case, they've added locations. So banality zero would be dreaming or freehold, and it goes up to banality 10, technocracy stronghold, or Dantean autumn people strongholds. Interestingly, people will always have between one and nine banality. They don't, even Dantean and technocrats are listed at nine, and I thought that was an interesting choice. I don't love the chart either in tabletop. I do have to say, though, in an org game, it's totally necessary. Like, I get how you're playing a character and you're going from city to city to city, playing in these games run by different storytellers with the same character that is built on an assumption of a certain level of consistency. And this is exactly the sort of thing that would need to be standardized in that setting. So I, I don't see a way around this chart. The other one I bumped into was the mist chart is back too, which is one I don't hate so much. And the thing I thought was interesting about it was that they jumped what used to be the Banality 10 uh, Mist's Forgetting consequence from Banality 10 down to Banality 7. So uh, Enchanting Mortals and interacting with them while in Weird State behaves a little bit differently and a little bit more harshly. And, you know, based on the setting, it makes sense to do that. I just thought it was interesting that they truncate almost exactly as much as they added to the... uh, stages of bedlam i think that really matches like you said in terms of setting with the endless winter i also have had conversations with people who are like no the myths aren't that big a deal people will remember you know doing these things and i'm just sitting here thinking that doesn't that doesn't make any sense and i went back and i looked at the chart and i thought i see why they're interpreting this this way there's a lot of when that happens people look at that person and they call them crazy that's how this plays out in the real world that was being very willfully that wasn't always being taken into account so i also think some of pulling this down a little bit is the old chart in terms of the 8 9 10 boundary having your average banality human see something from the mists and retain it doesn't actually match with how it's described in most of the narratives. Well, that's the thing too, is like you have to have banality three or less to have a memory you remember clearly enough and confidently enough to describe as truth. There aren't a whole lot of humans who have a banality of three. No, like toddlers. Like, yeah, <laughs> and like at four and above, you're convinced maybe something like that kind of happened when I was asleep or drunk. Like, it, it's not that much more forgiving in tabletop. It's just the upper tier cutoff has fallen down a little bit, and I just don't understand those conversations. Like, the mists won't clean this up. Yes, it will. (laughs) Yeah, so I I think also this falls into the, in a great big huge game, less complexity is easier to manage. And 
you know, I think the leeway of those upper levels and wanting to have some ramification grow out of, well, they remember a little and they become obsessed with it. Those could be interesting stories in tabletop, but in a LARP setting, there's a certain cutoff. Yeah, there's like a certain cutoff where you're like, it was a cop. He's not going to (laughs) remember. And you just want to move on with the story. (laughs) Yeah, you you need to have that cutoff for the player who totally isn't me. Who would be like, yeah, so I actually want that negative consequence. Can we do that, like, right now with no planning? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's not you at all. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would say the wrap-up on the systems overall, there are a couple things, like the derangements and the including death, like killing as a permanent banality that... Are a little weird. Overall, though, I like the setup. Even the banality chart is a lot more reasonable than the old banality chart. The old second edition banality chart cast other supernaturals almost always with very high banality. Wraiths are now five. Werewolves are six. I would argue Hamids should have a higher banality than Lupus, but, you know, I mean, that's really going to be up to the storyteller anyway. And these are ballparks any storyteller can say well this particular example of vampire werewolf etc is less banal than the average but it gives storytellers a starting point and it's not as brutal as the old charts overall it seems solid jumping back just a little bit i remember reading the cold iron thing and the little sidebar about carefully carrying cold iron at six inches from your body or extensively wrapped in something really reminded me of the chrome born by mercedes lackey because she totally did the same thing in the the cosmology of the world cold iron which was anything made of steel honestly but in the cosmology of the world anything made from cold iron could be shielded from hurting the fey either through magical shielding applied by human mages who are immune to cold iron or by wrapping it extensively in something else that provided a uh, dispersal or shielding effect. And it was one of those interesting things because it was well known by everybody in the books. And only people who fought like humans ever took it to their advantage. (laughs) So really overall... I think this is a pretty solid release of the game. You know, couple little things here and there that I hope continue to get refined, but I do think it is a lot better than the alpha, far more comprehensive options than the alpha. The other thing I will say, just reading through this, that really jumped out at me, even as primarily a tabletop player, although I have been LARPing a little bit recently, I would still buy this when it comes out, uh, especially the alternate takes on the kith would be entirely useful in a tabletop game if you wanted to pull in a faction of puka that have taken the views of the puka in the by night studio system or this kind of alternate history for the inanime or especially like the alternate take for the clerican i'm probably going to run the clerican like this forever so even if you're a tabletop player consider downloading these slices and sending in feedback and consider buying the book when it kickstarts or when it comes out. I think there's a lot here that's just useful as potential hooks and alternate approaches to Changeling overall. As long as you're okay with some alternate universe and varied takes on the canon, which I like, I I think it's just a 
really roundabout, interesting product. That's our take on the beta slice of the By Night Studios Changeling the Dreaming LARP system. And you should go out to Drive Through RPG and look it up and download it and take a look at it. And if you follow By Night Studios on Facebook or go to their website, you can find out more information about it. We will include those links in the text write up for the episode. And I just think it's generally worth a look. And there'll be some things you like and some things that, you know, maybe wouldn't fit your game. But uh, if nothing else, it's useful at your table. And I think this is really going to bring several more LARPers into the game. So thank you for listening, and I hope you take a look at the book. 